Hello, and you're very welcome to Mind You, where I dive into how different people use different ways to self-care. I'm Brian Barnes from Brian Barnes Wellbeing, where I partner with people to create unique wellbeing solutions. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Porik O'Mora. Porik has a huge passion for serving and minding others through his work as a mindfulness teacher, as an author, and as a counsellor. So Porik, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Brian. You're very welcome. Thanks, Porik. And you're so welcome. And Porik, can you start off by telling me a bit about yourself and how you got to here? Well, how I got here, I suppose, is uh, that I, when I was in my 20s, I was living in a bedsitter uh, in Dublin off, 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 um, off Gardner Street. And um, I was sort of interested in the mind and in psychology. Uh, and I was, I picked up a book one day in the library on Gestalt therapy, written by Fritz Perls and others. Gestalt therapy is, in some, in some respects, it's like, if you get into the theory of it, um, I don't think I ever finished, I ever finished the theory section of the book. It's really complex. But it had, luckily, it had various exercises and so on at the start. So I did all of those. And I remember walking down O'Connell Street uh, in Dublin and realizing that everything that I was seeing is, was my experience. In other words, I'd always had the feeling up to then that I was living in somebody else's world. Um, I had a feeling almost of being in a waiting room waiting for life to begin. And when I had this kind of experience, I, uh, the, way I, the way I spoke to myself about it was, you know, that there is that, um, there's a bus going along O'Connell Street. Now the bus is really there, but the experience of seeing the bus and reacting to it, that's all inside me, you know, coming to me through my senses. And it's hard to explain why that should be should have been um, important or transformative, but it was. It kind of brought me out of that waiting room I'd felt I'd been in and into, into life and into seeing that a part of the experience of life that I was having, a large part of it was created by my nervous system, if you like. Um, and then there was the part of it was created by, by life and people and things and so on. So that made a big difference to me, and I, I, I stayed, I stayed a kind of interested in psychology, and I used to read some self-help books, of which there were not very many at the time, actually, but um, I would read them, and um, I did, uh, I did a psychology degree with the Open University eventually, which was a great experience, and. A lot of Irish people actually did that psychology psychology degree. It was one of the most popular of them. And I then came to the point where I was working for um, the Irish Times. I was a journalist there for about, staff journalist there for about 20 years. And so I was working there. And I kept also reading um, psychology books and the Irish Times, actually before I went working for them, they published 
a really, really long series of articles by a long series of short articles by Mary Maher, who was later became a colleague of mine in the Irish Times. She was um, at that time she was uh, uh, sort of known, I suppose she had been one of the leaders of the, the feminist movement in Ireland, and she also wrote like an angel, I would say, in the Irish Times. So anyway, she wrote this very long series about different aspects to psychology and um, different therapies and so on. And I was fascinated by that. So I think that that kind of acted on me as well. And I, I kept reading stuff in the Irish Times and um, kept reading sort of books and things about about um, self-help and then I was doing that psychology degree and one day one day I was I was in Eason's which is the big bookshop in O'Connell Street and I was wandering around there which I often did I used to leave my desk you can do this kind of thing in a newsroom or at least you could at that time you can just get up and wander off and people assume that you're doing something useful and um with me, it was often just wandering around bookshops. And in essence, I came across a book called The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, Mindfulness, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. And uh, I was quite taken by it because I'd never heard of mindfulness before. And so I opened the book there and then, and I read about, about what was called bare attention, bare attention. And it was uh, describing how you kind of witness you witness what you yourself are doing. So you pay attention to what you're doing. You cultivate an awareness of it. And you're just doing that, wit that, that witnessing without judgment what you are doing. So what I was doing was standing there reading a book, you know? Um, so witnessing that without judgment. And again, that was some kind of a breakthrough moment for me. I sort of kind of was able to step out into that kind of witnessing thing. And so I bought the book and it's still actually, all those years later, it's sitting in front of me on the, on the shelf here. And I went back to work in the Irish Times and then I, I wandered off again. I went over to Trinity College and there was a, a cricket match or a cricket game, I don't know what you call it, a match or a game, going on in Trinity College. And I remember standing on the steps of the pavilion bar in Trinity, drinking a pint of lager and watching the cricket. And it was a nice sunny day, but being mindful, just staying with that awareness. And it was really, really enjoyable experience. So after that, I was kind of, I was kind of uh, really into mindfulness. And I began to, I began to um, learn more about it and to do it more. I think we're going to talk a bit more about that later. But just to say that in the, in the meantime, uh, it was reading things like self-help books and applying them to myself. And uh, this really was what helped me. There was the, the Open University degree then was in, in psychology was funny enough, it wasn't, it didn't give a lot of kind of, of a self-help type of, of approach. It was, it was very much a more, laboratory-based laboratory findings and so on. But I mean, it was one of the best things I ever did in my life was doing that degree. And it helped me a lot later on. So I began to, um, I suppose, practice what I, was, what I was reading. 
Uh, there was a book by Susan Jeffers called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, which was famous at the time. Um, it was so famous it used to be um, satirized, you know, by comedians and that, but it was a very good book. Still is a very good book. And um, I used to to read the, to read that if I was feeling stressed or down. Um, I even read, read to go way, 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 way back. I even read um, a book by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's still being published in different editions, though he is long gone and uh, picked up ideas from that. So I always had this thing of wanting to know how does the mind work and how can I, how can I, how can I work with that, you know? And I suppose that fascination. And I know you mentioned a lot Richard Carlson, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Another amazing book, isn't it? Yeah, Richard Carlson's book, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, is probably still on sale in thousands, or if not millions, of bookshops around the world. And he wrote, um, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff is a series of little, like, like the, the size of the book is, is small, I mean, in terms of its dimensions. And it's... Um, each chapter in it is only about a page and a half long, but each chapter has an idea in it. And I find those really, 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 really helpful. And um, I just began to, I just began to, um, at that time, I hadn't read him, but he was, he was writing actually around that same time. And it's more recently that I've begun to, uh, in more recent years that I've begun to read him. And um, like he has things, I'm just looking at one, at a chapter heading here, imagine the people in your life as tiny infants and as 100-year-old adults, stuff like that. Um, and he, he, what's really significant to me about him is that he was into meditation and Buddhism and stuff like that. But his book doesn't really say very much about that. And in fact, if he had talked about those things in his book, it, it would have been categorized as kind of new agey stuff and um, people would have would not have bought it in the numbers that they did um, but they it sold in millions and millions and millions and millions of copies it was in every airport bookshop in the world it was in all the bookshops and um, that kind of prepared people's minds I think for the mindfulness kind of rev revolutionist wrong word probably but the, the surge in the interest in mindfulness that was on the way absolutely because like you i had read Derek dale carnegie and susan jeffers i remember yeah. reading her as a teenager which mm. would have been kind of i don't know like late 80s early 90s yeah. and it was a very new kind of and you know tony robbins yeah yeah tony robbins uh, yeah. and Hugh and, and dale carnegie i've read dale carnegie as well and, yeah. um, you know, again, like, so that definitely kind of whet the appetite for people to kind of, you know, look at, you know, mindfulness and look at it, kind yeah. of maybe kind of look at it in more detail. Yeah. Well, Park, thank you so much for sharing that amazing journey with me and diving deeper into how you mind others um, and kind of, again, focusing, focusing on mindfulness, um, you know, because you're a mindfulness teacher and you write about yeah. mindfulness, like kind of day to day, like when you're teaching and sharing your knowledge about mindfulness with people, like where do you start off? Well, where I start off always is in, I would do a simple mindfulness practice with them and then use that to explain what mindfulness is. Um, and so 
I would use a practice like Ashton to just become aware of their breathing, um, of their posture, of sounds that they're hearing and of their breathing again, um, and to try to keep their awareness of what they're doing, but knowing that their awareness is going to drift and just keep coming back to it. And that helps me to explain that mindfulness is about returning to the present moment. It's not about being, you can, you can be in the present moment for a short while, but your mind is going to take you away, away again really quickly. So it's returning out of rumination and uh, complaining about yourself, complaining about other people in your head. It it's, takes you from that just into pure awareness of this moment. And um, so it, a simple exercise can help you to, to explain that. And once people know that, they can then apply it themselves, you know. But one of the one of the things I try to do is to keep it sort of simple and short because I think that mindfulness is simple and short uh, and can be done in, in short um, exercises, if you like. Um, and I think that when people... Um, sometimes I find it when people learn about mindfulness, they're learning it in a setting which might imply that they've got to spend half an hour every morning just being mindful of their breathing, say. Um, and that's a very good thing to do, but the trouble is it's, it's very hard to keep that up. Um, people's lives tend to be more, more um, sort of demanding in the mornings or something. And also it can be a bit boring, actually. It's not always a fascinating, interesting thing to do, but it's very, it's very good. So I tend to give people these really simple ways of being mindful as they go through their day and of returning their awareness to the present moment. I think that's, that's a key thing. And that makes it doable for them, you know? Uh, and it means that people can, people can then use mindfulness as a kind of a, a resource. I mean, you might have somebody who works, say, in a hospital, and, you know, hospitals uh, tend to have long, wide corridors in them. And uh, so you might say, when you're walking down that corridor, instead of thinking about the latest drama at work, you know, or the latest conspiracy theory at work. Um, just try to be walking down the corridor, just bringing your mind just to that, to the sensation of walking and to seeing what you see as you walk down. That's mindfulness. And um, it's, so it's easy to practice that way. Or in a meeting, you know, you could have 10% of your uh, attention on your breathing and give the other 90% to the meeting. Uh, that's mindfulness as well. It also keeps you aware of the meeting because often people drift drift away in their heads um, when they're at meetings and sometimes it's very understandable that they do so. Uh, so it's that or eating mindfully, just knowing that you're eating while you're eating. These things can be, the point about these things is not that they're, it's not so much the big virtue of being in the now, it's the virtue of the fact that coming into the now takes you out of a preoccupation with worries and with negative things and with fears and anxiety and unfairnesses that you experience and so on. And it just brings you out of that into a calmer situation. And that then reduces your overall levels of stress and makes it easier for you to navigate life, which is fairly, life is pretty demanding, you know, so uh, challenging. And so it makes it easier to navigate that. So that's, what, that's the kind of approach I tend to take. 
because I, I know from research pork and I, you know I do a lot of research in kind mm. of you know on psychology and mental health and neuroscience and you know I'm, I'm just like yourself I'm fascinated by it and they reckon that if, if, if you're not being mindful and in the moment there's a 75% chance that you'll have a negative thought about the future or the past and you know when you think that we all have you know roughly 60,000 thoughts a day you know not being not being in the moment you're leaving yourself open to being anxious about the future or kind of ruminating, depressed about the past and as you said I think a lot of people get caught up when they're learning about mindfulness it's not a static thing like the whole thing about mindfulness it's like it's like kind of growing a muscle it's it's not being in the moment statically it's when your mind wanders to notice it and to come back that's where the magic happens isn't it that's where the magic that's, mindfulness uh, yeah, that's, that's where it happens and um professor mark williams who did a lot of the work on mindfulness the major work on mindfulness and depression at um oxford university yeah. um he talks about when you realize you've drifted drifted away in your head and then you come back. Well, as he said, that's kind of a golden moment in mindfulness because yeah. that's when you really build that mindfulness muscle. Exactly. And in that, those details of everyday life that you practice mindfulness, you will see images of people uh, sitting meditating on the top of a mountain or something in California um, and um, watching the sun go, going down or coming up. And um, But it's not really like that. You know, not many people do that. And actually... Those lengthy meditations that people sometimes inflict on themselves were, you know, if you read accounts sometimes of the um, of the Buddhist monasteries where a lot of these meditations originated, it was the top guys, as it was, in the monasteries who tended to do that because they had the time and everybody else was busy running around taking care of things for them. Um, so we, we can build... We can build mindfulness into our lives without the lengthy meditations, I think. Everybody wouldn't agree with that, but that's my experience anyway. Well, like I, I read there recently, like the only kind of you know enlightenment that is to be found at the top of a mountain is what the enlightenment that you bring up there with you. I think that's that's a very good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, yeah, and again, idea. yeah practicing mindfulness and again it is a practice isn't it like you know again i love what you say about you know kind of keeping it short and sweet and simple like simplicity is the ultimate sophistication and like you know when i'm talking to um people about mindfulness again i'll say to start off at a minute you know maybe a minute today two minutes tomorrow three minutes the next day and uh, you know like make it so small that that, you know that, that, that you know that you couldn't not do it and to build on that yeah, you build on that, and um, so each morning when I get up, I mean, I do various exercises. I don't, I mean, just normal kind of physical exercises to keep get myself fit. And um, and then I sit down, I just do ten minutes of um, mindfulness of my breathing, and I just I just follow myself through it. You know, in other words, I would talk to myself about what what the breathing is like. You know, is it deeper, shallow, long, or short? Smooth or forced? Um, things like that, which are the instructions that are in some of the original um, uh, uh, books, the original instructions on mindfulness. Uh, so that's just 10 minutes, but it makes a big difference. But then I'm, I'm dipping in, like I find that I just, after a time you begin to naturally realize when you're not being mindful and you bring yourself into it. Um, so I find that 
those simple exercises or even just, you know, there's the uh, what's called 7-Eleven breathing where you count to seven while you're breathing in and to 11 while you're breathing out. Something like that actually can have quite a good effect on your mental health um, because not only are you, are you interrupting the rumination that's like having negative thoughts going around and around in your head, but you are also... Uh, engaging with the, the calming part of your nervous system uh, through the outbreath, which the outbreath tends to tends to sort of connect with and activate. Uh, so you're doing lots of things in doing that. And just having those very simple methods, I think, is just so helpful. Absolutely. Um, you know, and even even the old neuroscience part, which I love, like you're literally building up your grey matter, your prefrontal cortex, and you're, you're reducing your amygdala which is the fight or flight yeah. um, sympathetic yeah. nerve response. Yeah. So you're, you're literally changing your brain, aren't you? Well, you are changing it because there is the, um, the amygdala becomes, becomes a bit smaller. The amygdala is the little widget in the, in somewhere between your ears and down a bit. And it's, um, it scans everything for, um, for danger or safety. As far as we know, it spends about three quarters of its processing power on, potential danger because we are a survival system really yeah and um when it thinks that you might be in danger it throws you into kind of a stress response and it does that it seems to work on the principle it's better to be sure than sorry so if, if, if anything seems like dangerous it tr throws you into that stress response and that could be realizing that um maybe i'm going to be late for work this morning and it kicks it kicks you into the stress response um even though you may be in a job where the, there are no bad consequences to this, or if you're thinking about stressful things from the past, stressful memories, it kicks in the stress response or uh, stressful things in the future. So if you can calm down the amygdala, make it be calmer in general, that's a big help. And all of these little mindfulness practices actually do that. Um, and even if it's only a few minutes at a time, they calm it down. Um, absolutely you know. and I, I always throw in when I'm talking about mindfulness Porik, about nasal breathing because when yeah. you breathe in through your nose you're breathing in nitric oxide which is produced in your sinuses at each side of your nose yeah. in, and it's it's a gas and nitric oxide is a vasodilator so it increases your blood vessels and it reduces your blood pressure reduces your pulse and also boosts your immune system so it's an internal kind of medication and you know like um, you know when, when you know I'm talking about breathing I always you know to breathe in through your nose and just to give it that reason that you're literally breathing in that nitric oxide which is reducing blood pressure your pulse yeah. and increasing yeah. your immune system which is magical again isn't it yeah it is I mean it is and you see it's simple this is the thing we often look for very complicated answers but it's simple and I would find let's say if I was walking down the street say it was the street was crowded or something if I just come into an awareness of the breath in my nostrils as I'm breathing in, breathing in and out, it, it, um, I immediately get a sense of calm. You know, it, it brings me, it gives me a bit of headspace, so to speak. Um, or equally, if I wake up at night, I would often just go into that nasal breathing because it takes your attention away then from any worries you might have, you know, or anything you're trying to plan. Um, so I think that's actually a very, really helpful form of, of breathing and even of, of mindfulness, you could say, in itself. 
just start breathing through your nose and um, noticing, no, noticing the sensation of the breath. It comes down to simple things like that. Um, and although uh, mindfulness has been with us as a practice in the Buddhist tradition for about two and a half thousand years, uh, nobody has really come up with a more complicated way of doing it. It's simple to do, you know? Absolutely. Again, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it is the ultimate sophistication. And it's, um, it means that once you've begun to practice mindfulness, it's something you always have with you, you know? Um, it's something that uh, you don't need a, a machine or something, or you don't need to go to a specialist. You just always have that with you, you know? Um, and so I think that it's wonderfully, it's kind of portable in that way. And it suits people of all faiths also and of none. Um, so it's very, it's very user-friendly. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And Park, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Again, just the amazing work that you do. And can you tell me now, what's your favorite part of doing what you do and why? Well, I suppose the favorite part from me is when I'm when I'm writing about it, uh, I find that when I make the time and the space to do the writing, I find that very very um, satisfying. I'm writing a book at the moment on acceptance, which is due to be published in next January, and um, I just find that interesting to do and satisfying, especially when I put the time aside for it out of the day, which in my case, often means just getting up a bit earlier and starting off the day by doing that writing. Uh, I like that. And I like the, I like learning more about mindfulness. Like whatever I might be doing in life, even though I was never, had never done mindfulness, I would like learning more and keeping in touch with um, what, with ways of, um, ways of applying mindfulness, but also just ways of talking about it and ways of explaining it, that kind of thing. I like that a lot. Because yeah. you mentioned Mark Williams, like, you know, like, and again, like I personally, because I've read all your books, I would put you up there with Mark Williams, John, oh, Kabat, John, John Kabat-Zinn, um, and, you know, like, do you follow their work? Oh, I do follow their work. And uh, Mark Williams, as I said, did uh, the, the major work on depression, which showed that yeah. when people have chronic depression, if they, meaning if they've been badly depressed three times or more, if they practice mindfulness in between the bouts of depression, uh, the rate of relapse falls quite uh, significantly. Uh, so, and then John Kabat-Zinn did the work on pain, mindfulness and pain, which is really about, in a way, about acceptance of the pain. And um, he, his work, in a way, brought mindfulness into the present era because he, um, it was, studied, researched, and then accepted in medical settings and in health settings. So, um, yeah, they, 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 I, I would, I, the other thing too about John Kabat-Zinn uh, and Mark Williams is that if you look up their talks on YouTube, I mean, they're really, really very good mm -hmm. and they're very interesting and you'll never get bored. And neither of them is kind of, um, you know, sensationalizes anything. Neither of them starts throwing around <coughs> obscure words from ancient languages. Uh, you know, they're, they're all just 
they're very straightforward about it. And I suppose I try to emulate the way that they do it in a way. But I would certainly suggest having a listen to them. Mark Williams of Oxford University and then John Kabat-Zinn, K-A-B-A-T hyphen Zinn, Z-I-N-N. So they would be good to, to listen to. But certainly well, it, along, it, alongside your own, because you have many, and again, I've watched a lot of you, have many videos on YouTube and your website and all those resources. So again, like I would kind of put them up there with those guys. Like, Park, yeah. Park, can you tell me that, like, you've shared with me how you mind others and that amazing toolkit that you have. And how do you mind you? Well, I do that really through... I suppose there's a couple of things that I do. One is the um, that little mindfulness session that I do every morning, that 10 minutes of mindfulness, of, of mindfulness of my breathing. Another is that I do um, something called focusing, which is where you, you're thinking about the day ahead or what's coming up. You just go into how you feel in your body about that. Um, what's the feeling in your tummy and your chest and around your heart? And if you if you do that, you can you can um, look at it at, at the feeling as it changes. This only takes a minute to do as it changes, uh, where it is, the extent of it. Is there any image that comes with it? And then you can sometimes just ask it, like, what do you not want from me? Because if you're feeling anxious, it's something you don't want really. What do you not want from me? And just listen to the answer. And then the next question is. What do you want from me? And sometimes, you know, that can give you quite an interesting insight, a step back from what's going on. And focusing has been around since the 1950s. Um, it's something I'm planning to write a bit more about on, on the website uh, because I just think it's something that's worth passing on. So I do the focusing and I write a journal, which means that I sit down and I just start writing about whatever is in my mind. And that might be to do with what I've got to do today or what I did yesterday or the fact it's raining outside or, you know, it could be anything. Um, and I find that in doing that, I, I, uh, I can get the, um, I can sort of clear my mind. I can get some sense of equilibrium, often get ideas that are very good. Uh, and the key to it is you just write about whatever is in your mind. It's called morning pages. Lots of people do it, morning pages. And um, it was, I read about it in a book called The Artist's Way. The Artist's Way, by yes, I know, Cameron. And um, it's a great, it's a great, and basically you just sit down, you write, well, she would say you write two or three pages um, by hand about whatever's in your mind. I tend to do it on the, um, on the, on my laptop um, because writing by hand makes me, um, I don't know why it, it because I spent all that time as a journalist, I suppose I, I'm so used to using a keyboard that uh, not doing it makes me feel strange. <laughs> so I tend to type it and I can type pretty fast to so get my thoughts down. And um, I often don't ever read it again, you know, what I've written, because it's the action, the, the actual journaling in the moment is what's, is what's important. And just kind of getting it out, kind of, you know, getting it out and, yeah. you know, onto the screen or onto the page. Yeah, getting absolutely. it out onto the screen or onto the page. And you are, you are looking at whatever the situation is, whatever's going on for you, you're looking at it 
I would imagine with a different part, slightly different part of your brain, because I imagine that we spend use a different part of the brain for writing to what we use, say, for talking and what we use, say, for just thinking to ourselves. And um, you get a different perspective. It's quite effective. You have to do it. I would suggest to people that if you're going to do it, don't leave it lying around where other people can read it because you want to be able to really express yourself, you know? Absolutely. Um, and Park, yeah. you talk a lot also about gratitude and that's one of my big, again, I share that with a lot of people and the power of gratitude. Well, gratitude is, the thing about gratitude is that the amount of research that shows that practicing gratitude is good for your emotional health. The amount of research that shows that would stretch all the way around the planet at least once, if not more than once. Um, it makes a huge difference to people's mental health. And that can be um, that can be just making, just maybe reflecting a few times a week on what you feel grateful for, um, or just doing it at the weekends. Maybe ma making a list, but if you, if you make a list of things you feel grateful for, try to see if you can feel that gratitude physically because uh, it kind of deepens it. Um, so you're making that list, could be morning, could be evening. You might put time aside at the weekend to make a list of things you feel grateful for or to write about your gratitude. And um, that tends to make people more optimistic, um, uh, more positive. And it also tends, people often sleep better uh, there's a piece of research which showed that um, people with a with a neuromuscular disease, um, which is quite challenging, you know, who did this gratitude practice, found after a few weeks that they were more positive and they were also more um, sleeping better and waking up more refreshed. So there's a lot to be gained from practicing gratitude. Uh, and I think that if you flip it around, think of people you know who are never grateful for anything. Well, they tend to be pretty miserable, you know? Um, so the opposite then is being grateful for things. And uh, I think, and to me, gratitude is acknowledging and appreciating that I have got something, received something that didn't have to be given to me. Uh, and that could be something that somebody in the family gives me or or it could be it could be a sunny day i mean the sun at the moment is shining outside my window and um the universe did not have to give me um sunshine outside the window in fact the universe probably doesn't even know it's giving me sunshine outside the window but i can still be grateful for it because it's something that i, that I like and that's good for me and i appreciate so or of course you can be grateful <coughs> to a person or you can be grateful uh, to a higher higher power, depending on whether you're religious or not. But it's um, it's really it's really good. It's a really healthy thing to practice. Um, I said I suspect that it's genetically that we have a genetic um, predisposition towards it, because if you think of people as social beings, um, that being grateful for what we get would be an important part of kind of keeping groups going and you know keeping the wheels turning in a in um in a in a good way keeping people connected yeah yeah keeping them connected absolutely so, yeah, very and, deep. Uh, yeah 
and also like the, again coming back to the neuroscience and the brain like it actually changes your brain like gratitude changes yeah. your brain and um you know it, like what, no matter what you're grateful for like as you said to feel that gratitude like you know like the it's the same chemicals whether you find a euro on the ground in the car park yeah. or whether you win a million dollars now you know like different amounts of money but it's the same internal kind of you know um feelings so you know it's the kind of to you know to practice those feelings and to grow those feelings of gratitude and yeah, yeah. the benefits are amazing there's i love a quote by Rumi. um he said gratitude wear gratitude like a cloak and it will feel yeah. in every corner of your life yeah 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 i agree yeah i agree i think it makes a big difference and people who see gratitude as a weakness i think are cutting themselves off from a benefit that they could have. And um, or even people who say, well, why should I be grateful to so-and-so for doing a good job? Because isn't that what he or she is there for anyway? But well, you know, if you're grateful to people, a lot of people in the world get by with uh, doing a pretty bad job. So when somebody does a good job, you can be grateful for that. Um, and I think that there's a lot of so it's gratitude, and the important thing, of course, is gratitude for, for small things. You know, yeah, it doesn't exactly. have to be a, a Mercedes Benz wrapped up in a in a big ribbon or something. It can be something very small um, that somebody emptied the dishwasher or something. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and again, I, I have three young kids, and like we go through, you know, kind of almost every day, right? What are we grateful for? And, you know, yeah. we're and they'll say we're grateful for our cats. We're grateful that yeah. we had, you know, hot chocolate today, that we went to the swimming yeah. pool. And that's really, you know, it's beautiful to hear them kind of like, and like, you know, encourage them to be grateful for like, it's the small stuff. Um, and yeah. you know, that, that makes a huge difference. And again, because and you talk about being grateful for someone else, like when you're grateful for someone else, you benefit and they benefit. So it's win-win. Well, it's win-win, and um, it's it's in, some of the, the the research is very interesting in showing that uh, children and teenagers who are grateful, the most the ones that are among them who are most grateful, tend to have a greater sense of meaning in their lives, you know, and less likely to suffer depression, and um, in general, a better just a better experience of living, and um, I think that so I think it's a very it's a very useful thing. Um, and we can all see it in ourselves like when somebody when somebody um, if you do a favour for somebody and they say nothing back in return you know they don't say thanks or they don't mention it again well I mean we would all probably find ourselves saying oh well that's the last time I did anything for that fella you know and it's, it comes out almost instinctively and that's why I think actually gratitude is a fairly fairly deep instinct in human beings absolutely Absolutely. Grateful, yeah. Well, Porik, thank you so much for sharing with me again your journey to here and how you mind others, that amazing toolkit that you have, and how you mind you. And where can people find you, Porik? People can find me on my website, which is podrigomoron.com, P A D R A I G O M O R A I N, podrigomoron.com. Um, I also have a web address which is mindfulness experience.com uh, which takes you to the same place actually might be easier for some people to remember mindfulnessexperience.com and then I'm I'm on um, 
Instagram under my own my own name. And um, also then I have, just want to put in a little mention for the Daily Bell, which is a daily mindfulness reminder that I send people by email and that uh, a lot of people get around the world. And uh, so if you, if you look up my website, you see there where to, where to um, sign up for it. Uh, so it's basically, yeah, it's basically on, it's in, um, on the website itself and Instagram. Um, and I have a Facebook page as well. So my Facebook page sometimes is hijacked by persons unknown. Uh, so okay. they might not be talking to me. I don't know. Facebook won't do anything about it. So there isn't anything I can do about it. Okay. Except, well, well, ex- except to accept. Yeah. Yeah. Just okay. accept and be mindful yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, Parik, again, thank you so much uh, for sharing that with me. I will put a link to that website on this, to your website on this podcast. And again, like I, I can, you know, I can only say I'm, I've been so honoured and privileged to talk to you. And I, I've read your books and I've trained with you and, you know, I've watched your videos on YouTube. And again, like your those resources that you offer so generously are so informative and so kind of, you know, they're, they're simple, but they're informative and they really kind of, you know, give you a good grasp on mindfulness. So I would encourage anyone listening to check out Parik's books, his videos, his website, and definitely sign up for that Daily Bell um, that's on his website, parkamorn.com. And again, it's it's a daily kind of reminder to be mindful and they're just beautiful and they always hit the spot. They always hit the spot. So Parik, again, thank you so much for being so thank kind you, and thank so you. generous and for sharing with me, you know, and just being so honest and so, um, yeah, just, just, do the amazing work that you do and best of luck with everything that you do in the future. Many thanks, Brian. Thanks. And the best of luck to you too. And to all listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Mind You. And I hope you've learned about the benefits of holistic self-care. Please like, subscribe and follow Mind You Podcast wherever you listen to it. And please share it so we can keep the ripple effect of holistic self-care going out to the world. You can find me and Mind You at brianbarneswellbeing.com and remember to mind you.